0: Father, we are so thankful for your love and grace and mercy towards us, that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're thankful for your kindness and your mercy. Father, I thank you that you used your tremendous truth, the gospel concerning your son, to to reveal our sin and the Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you use your word to grow us in respect to salvation. And I pray our hearts to be prepared. We'd be ready to receive your word and allow it to do its work in our hearts. Bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, we see the very real possibility that we as believers might be distressed by various trials. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, we see that believers should not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon them for their testing, as though some strange thing were happening. Maybe some of you are being persecuted for Christ, maybe you're suffering for Christ. Maybe you're suffering for doing what is right. Maybe you've entered into a trial or a physical trial or a relational trial or a work trial or whatever type of trial, family or marriage. And as we enter into those trials that are sometimes not our fault, sometimes because we're doing the right thing, we can be tempted to be discouraged. We can be tempted to even feel ashamed at times because of what people might say about us. As believers in the midst of those difficulties. The same temptations were true for those believers of Peter's day. They were suffering and they were going to suffer for Christ. And they were tempted to be discouraged and even ashamed. To back down. So with that in mind, how can we keep from being discouraged when we are suffering for Jesus Christ? We're going to continue our study in First Peter. If you turn to chapter 2 of First Peter we're going to be looking at verses 7 and 8, and this is a piece of a larger section that we have already begun, uh, verses 4 to 10. I want to remind each and every one of us of the context. As we've studied this book, Peter is writing believers in Asia Minor, uh, those who are literally about to go through a fiery ordeal at about 64 AD. Peter has already reminded these believers that they have been chosen for a great salvation and they are residing as temporary residents on this earth. They are sojourners just as we are as believers. He has also reminded them of their great salvation in Jesus Christ that we have been, by his great mercy, have been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a tremendous present salvation in Christ that brings an eternal hope that is alive and a future inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven we are protected by God's power through faith for this wonderful salvation which is ready to be revealed yet in the midst of that great salvation declared by Peter there's also the reality of trials that we go through but we need to understand in those trials that God uses those trials to purify us to to heat up our lives to raise the dross in our lives that sin that he might swipe it off as we confess and are forgiven and be purified vessels useful for the master he also is proving through the testing that our faith is genuine and that proof will result in future praise and honor and glory to the lord when he comes and you might remember in the rest of chapter one he reveals how we are to live in light of this great salvation and we have commands based on truth for us. We are to fix our hope in the grace that is to be revealed when Christ comes. We are to be holy because He is holy. We are to live in the context of godly fear because of the price prayed, paid His precious blood. We are, to, we are to love the body of Christ. We've been born again unto a sincere love of the brethren. And then we are to yearn for His word that we might grow in respect. To salvation we have all these commands based on our relationship with jesus christ and from those commands based on that great salvation that we have through christ we have come to a portion where there are no commands just encouragement verses 4 through 10 there's not one command in there for us it's just encouragement for us in the context of the difficulties that we certainly will encounter as believers in jesus christ So with that in mind, how can we keep from being discouraged when suffering? Today I believe we're going to see the second part of that where we need to remember that Christ, precious Christ, is for us. It's for us. I want to read the whole passage uh, from 4 to 10, but we will be focusing today on 7 and 8. But I want to, first of all, review what we've seen. It's all together a review from four to six, and then seven to eight we'll teach on, and we'll may touch a little bit on nine and ten. But let's read the whole portion. Verse four, and coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices, of, of spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. In then our passage. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. What a tremendous passage of scripture, what a tremendous portion of God's word, what a privilege we have to study it together. Now again, I'm going to be looking primarily at verses 7 and 8 today, we'll be looking at that, but we need to see how it, how, what proceeds it flows into it and then what goes from it. So we're going to review actually verses 4 through 6 initially and then move into our passage verses 7 to 8. And I don't know if you'll remember before we took our break during the Christmas season that we saw that in the context of what God has shared through Peter, we need to be encouraged and we should be encouraged in the midst of difficulty knowing what God is doing in us. When we know the work that God is doing in us, that should be an encouragement in light of all the things that we perceive and see in our lives. When we see the truth of what God is actually doing, it should be an encouragement And again, I want to read 4 through 6. And coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed what a tremendous portion of scripture here tremendous portion i'm not going to reteach verses four through six but i am going to emphasize the flow here for a moment that we might be able to remember the main points in that passage because it leads right into what we will see in verses seven and eight do you remember we saw what god is doing in the lives of true believers Remember, we saw in verses 1 and 2 that we were to set aside sin and yearn for the pure milk of the word that we might grow in respect to salvation. We were born again through the, through, the, through, the, through the living and abiding word of God. That's how God brought us about, that seed which is imperishable. And he also uses his word to grow us in respect to salvation. And therefore, we should be yearning for it, yearning for his word that we would grow in respect to salvation. And that was a command. And yet there was a qualification in verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You see, if you've been saved, you have partaken of the kindness of the Lord. His kindness towards us, sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. If you have trusted in him as Lord and Savior, you have partaken. You have partaken of the kindness of the Lord. And if you have, we should be yearning for his word that we would grow in respect to salvation. What does that mean? That we would grow and become more like Jesus Christ as we become less and less like the way we used to be, our old man. We become more and more like Christ as we depend on him and his word is brought forth in our hearts and lives. And then we come to verse 4 where we have this phrase, and coming to him. It's in the context of this tremendous desire to be in his word and coming to him. As we come to the Word of God and yearn for it to grow, we come to Jesus Christ and coming to Him. And then the Lord is described this way as the living stone. He uses this metaphoric analogy of a building in which Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And we are stones being built up, this, this temple that is being built up that we would offer spiritual sacrifices through Christ. It is an analogy of God's building project in the context of the body of Christ, what God is doing in us. And the Lord himself is described as the living stone here in verse 4. He is a living stone, and then we see in the middle of verse 4, he was rejected by men, rejected by men. He's the stone, as we will see today, which the builders rejected. The term rejected speaks of throwing out as a result of a test, You've tested it, you've looked at it, and you've thrown it out. You've rejected it. That's what happened to Jesus Christ. And we also see, but in contrast, having been rejected by men, in contrast, in verse 4, the end of it, he is choice and precious in the sight of God. In the sight of God the Father, Jesus Christ is choice and precious. He is electos. He was chosen before the foundation to bring forth and to go to the cross and die for our sins. It was predetermined, Acts 2.22. He is also precious. The term speaks of highly regarded, honored, or valued. And we'll look at this more later on in our passage. And this should be an encouragement to us as believers, because the world rejects Christ, they reject us, but in God's sight, Christ is precious and honored, and we are in Christ, and we are in Christ. We are loved because of Christ. So if you'll remember, we saw the details of God's incredible building project as he builds up the body of Christ and coming to him, verse four, as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Verse five, notice what he says. You also as living stones, and that's a that's ironic. Stones aren't alive. It's a metaphor, right? But we are alive. We're alive in Christ. We are being built up, he says, are being built up. And he says, for what? As a spiritual house. For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing in us. People say, what should I do with my life? What is God doing in my life? Well, this is what he's doing no matter what you're doing. This is what he is doing in our lives. He is building us up that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That we would offer as we will see sacrifices of praise to him that we would offer our lives to Him and trusting ourselves to Him. We're being built up as a spiritual house. Really, the picture here is of the temple, a spiritual temple, which mirrors the Old Testament temple, which was a shadow of the reality of the temple of God. It's the incredible reality of what God is doing in the lives of true believers who would draw near to Him and listen and yearn for His word. And drawing near to him, or coming to him, we are being built up. You're not going to be built up if you don't draw to Jesus Christ through the word of God. There are a lot of believers, or so-called believers, who are in the word of God a lot. They know the word of God, but they're not drawing near to Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, relying, depending on him. And this is where pride comes in. When we start to know the word of God, the God of the word starts to become less. We need to trust in the Lord personally, draw near to Jesus Christ, and as we draw near by his word, by his through his spirit, we are being built up as a spiritual house, he says verse 5, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Some might say the priesthood is done, the priesthood isn't done. Everyone is a priest now. Every believer is a priest before the Lord. And we'll see what we are to do as priests, believer priests, before the Lord. We're going to see that we are to draw near and offer sacrifices. And notice he says we are a holy priesthood. We're a set apart. We're sanctified. God is setting us apart from sin unto himself. And we are a holy priesthood to do something. And of verse 5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How amazing. We believers are the temple of God. He indwells us through His Spirit. And we are the ones, we are the priests who also offer up spiritual sacrifices. Well, what are spiritual sacrifices? We understand the shadows, we understand the physical sacrifices that were brought forth in the Old Testament. We know that those sacrifices primarily pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would die for our sins. They were pictures and shadows that would point to his ultimate one-time, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. They pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But don't forget, in the Old Testament, there were other sacrifices that were not in relationship to sin. They were offerings such as the grain, wave, drink, free will and thank offerings in essence these offerings were offered in the context of worship of the living god and thankfulness these are these spiritual sacrifices well that's those are the physical ones but what do the spiritual sacrifices look like well first of all we know from romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 that we as a response to the gospel are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices acceptable to god right right we offer ourselves. It is our spiritual service of worship. Every day, we offer ourselves to God rather than to sin. We can offer ourselves to our own desires, our own sin, our own ways, our own desire, all, whatever it is. Or we can offer ourselves. We make that decision in our hearts before Jesus Lord God, I want to do your will today. Guide me and lead me in what you have me to do. I trust you. Help me. And we walk with Him throughout the day. We offer ourselves. I want to do this, Lord God. Maybe it's not a bad thing. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. We offer ourselves. God is building us up through his word that our hearts would be changed and desire to offer ourselves up, right? But there's also some other sacrifices we see that we offer up in Scripture. I mentioned this the last time we were in 1 Peter in Hebrews 13, 15. Let's, Let's look at that. Hebrews 13, 15, we see some other sacrifices and some of you who are believers, you're definitely the temple of God, but this temple doesn't have much sacrificing going on. Not much sacrificing going on because there's not much thankfulness, there's not much praise, there's not much dependence on the Lord. But that's what God wants us to do. Hebrews 13:15. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. If you are a true believer, your heart has been changed. And you will have a desire in your heart, if sin has not hardened it, to thank God and praise him for who he is and what he's done. And that's a continual sense. We're just thanking the Lord for everything that's happening around us. We're trusting him. We're thanking him for his goodness, his kindness, his mercy. We're thanking him and trusting him. We're praising him. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. God, through his word, as we draw near, builds us up as the temple that we would do these things. And as I said, some of the temples here were all the temple, but individually, there's not much sacrificing going on. There may be works going on, but we'll see in a moment the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Not doing stuff for God, but yielding to him, which will manifest in the things he wants us to do. And then you look at verse 16 of Hebrews 13. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. When we have a heart that loves others more than ourselves in the body of Christ, then we're going to do good unto others. We're going to give and help them in need. He says doing good and sharing. So there's a physical aspect of that too. We know that when the Philippians gave money to the Apostle Paul for the ministry with the right heart, that the Apostle Paul said specifically concerning that financial gift, Philippians 4.18, it was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When from the right heart you give to what God is doing in the body of Christ, it is acceptable sacrifice. Well-pleasing. It's well-pleasing. You see, God should be working these things out in your heart. If you're a drawing near to Him, you're in the Word of God, these things should be manifesting in your lives. If they're not, something is in the way. And as I mentioned, Psalm 51, verse 17, tremendous psalm. David writes, for thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. Hey, he's, he, you don't, he's saying basically after Nathan the prophet exposed his sin, he's saying, hey, if you wanted me to go do something to make up for this sin, I would do it, or he's saying, you don't want that. He's not saying I would do it, he's saying, you don't want that. You don't want that. He says, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, Thou wilt not despise. As I've been mentioning lately, as we grow in the understanding of the truth of God, we can become prideful. We need to have a broken spirit before the Lord, recognizing if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he, de- he deceives himself. Lord God, I need you in everything. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a whimpering, it's, it's a trust in the Lord. It's a heart that recognizes one's sinfulness and propensity to sin, but yet turns to Jesus Christ and trusts in Him. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. How much sacrificing is going on in your life? How much offerings are being offered up? That's what God's doing in our lives. He's doing that, And 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 it is in our passage, through Jesus Christ, end of verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. You can take the things I'm saying and try to go do them. It is not That will not happen. It is when we abide in Christ, we trust in Him. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. When we recognize we're not adequate to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we rely on Him, there's going to be a thankfulness, there's going to be a desire Seeing others is more important than yourselves. I mean, as we came to church today, were you thinking, Lord God, how can you use me today to, to come alongside your people, Lord God? How can I love them today? How can I do that? Or just, hey, I'm going to come to church, do my thing. We need to be reminded of the truth of God. Is your heart thankful as we sing those songs? Are you praising Him? Praising Him for what He's done in Jesus Christ? This is what God is doing in our lives. This is what he's doing. And then we come to a transition verse, which transitions between what we saw last time and what we will see today. And it's very important that we understand it. Verse 6, back in 1 Peter chapter 2. 4. This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. The term for could be translated or better translated because. God is building us up because he has laid a precious stone in Zion. He is doing this making us a spiritual temple that we would offer spiritual sacrifices as we draw near to Jesus because of Jesus Christ. Because he laid the stone in Zion. The reality is Zion is Israel. And Jesus Christ came to his own. God sent his son to his own people. And they rejected him. And they they, they said crucify him. But according to his predetermined plan, he was delivered up and he died. And he rose from the dead on the third day. I lay in Zion a choice stone. A chosen stone. A precious, again that word precious. A precious cornerstone. It's the, it's the capstone. It's the, or it's the keystone. It's the stone in which everything is built upon. If that stone is not there, the building cannot stand. And notice he has the second half of a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. It's interesting because uh, I understand the first part pretty easily. I think we understand that he's laid Christ a choice stone that he's put him in Zion, that Christ came to earth, God sent his son, we understand that. And then he says, he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. Turn to Isaiah 28 for a second. Isaiah 28, verse 16. And you might remember last time as we're turning there, I mentioned that verse 6 is crucial to help us understand this passage, the flow of what Peter is, by the inspired of the Spirit, is trying to do in the context of what is being shared Isaiah 28:16 Therefore thus says the Lord God Behold I am laying in Zion a stone a tested stone a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed He who believes in him will not be disturbed will not be disturbed Interesting uh, statement disturbed In the Hebrew, it means literally to make haste or to run away. It spoke of panicking in the midst of difficulty. He who believes in him will not panic in the midst of difficulty. He will not run away from that situation. Now, in the New Testament, the word that's used in our passage literally means to be put to shame. The New King James translates it put to shame. In your NESBs, you will have a note and it will say put to shame there. They'll say put to shame. I think that's a better translation. Not just disappointed. Certainly, we're not going to be disappointed. That's the end result. We're not going to be disappointed. You trust Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. But you will also not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. So what's the significance of this passage for us? Brothers and sisters, as we look at this, the events and scenario in First Peter, and we look at our lives, there is the very real temptation... That believers, when we suffer, might be discouraged and be ashamed. To flee, to run away because of the pressure of the wicked on us. To be overwhelmed by the trials that come our way for trusting Christ. To be discouraged, disturbed, panicked when we suffer. Look up at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Actually, verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, what does he say? This is our word. Let him not feel ashamed, but let him in in that name glorify God. There's the real temptation as you suffer for Christ that there might be the temptation to be ashamed. To be ashamed because of the way people treat us, because of the way people speak of us wrongly. To be ashamed of the consequences that might happen in front of the world. The Apostle Paul had to encourage Timothy in this, turn to Second Timothy chapter 1 verse seven. "When you stand firm for Christ, people will ridicule you. People will put you down. People will lie about you. They will say things falsely on account of Jesus Christ. There are things that can be said about you that were shameful and a temptation to be ashamed. Second Timothy 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. There was the temptation to be ashamed of the ministry and of Paul who was in prison. Because of the things that were wrongly said about Paul, the things that, were, that would be wrongly said about us. It's a temptation. I can identify with that. I don't know if you can. I can. I think you can too. When people make horrible false accusations about me or about the church, it's a temptation to go, wow, what are people thinking? Temptation to be ashamed about what's being said. What are these people thinking about us now with all this stuff being said? But we're not to be ashamed. Because when we trust in Jesus Christ, even in the context of trials and difficulties, we will not be ashamed. We will, be not, we will, will not be disappointed. So it's crucial to understand that. He says, for this is contained in Scripture back in chapter 2, verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will, be, will not be disappointed. Or literally, as you see in your notes, put to shame. Put to shame. You will not be let down if you trust in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, you will not be ashamed because you've trusted in Jesus Christ. He is building you up for his glory and for his good. That's what he's doing. Therefore, in the midst of suffering, brothers and sisters, recognize he was laid in Zion. He came to save us, and we are being built up upon him. Don't be disappointed if you suffer for Christ. Don't be ashamed. If you suffer, God is doing a great work. And instead, glorify God. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer, 1 Peter 4.15. Or as a troublesome meddler. Hey, don't suffer for sin. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, Peter writes. But in that name, let him glorify God. I think that's what he's talking about. So when you're tempted, God is doing a great work in you and I. A great work. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. So how can we keep from being discouraged when suffering? First, we should be encouraged when we see the great work that God is doing in us through Christ. Wow, in the midst of all this trouble and trials, he is building us up as a holy temple to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Now at this point, I think we're going to see in our passage that we should also be encouraged when we understand that precious Christ is for us. He is for us. Look at uh, verse 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were appointed. And I want to read 9 and 10, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week for context. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you'll notice, verses 7 to 10 are framed by a very important contrast between those who believe, verse 7, those who believe, and those who don't. Those who believe and those who disbelieve. That's the contrast here. And there are those who obviously respond to the word and those who are disobedient to the word and are eternally doomed. There are those who are chosen holy possession who have received mercy and there are those who don't and have not received mercy. That's the contrast here between those who believe and those who disbelieve. And he's going to encourage those who believe with this contrast based on the precious value applied to us. Notice we see this in verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. Notice this term then. It connects what he just talked about. This precious value then or therefore is for you who believe. This precious value. He's introducing a summary or a conclusion. Therefore or then this precious value is for you who believe. Believers. Believers. And again, we have this word for the third time, precious, in relationship to Christ, I believe. This precious value then is literally to you, you believing ones, to you, the believing ones. Now this term translated precious finds its root in the term honor. It speaks of that which is highly regarded, honored, or valued. And in relationships, we understand it when we highly regard someone, or highly value someone, they are precious to us. They are precious to us. Remember we saw that Christ is highly valued, chapter 2, verse 4, and coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus Christ is choice and precious in God's sight. But notice, let's read our passage. We see he's also precious. For us, let's read it from what we just studied and see it flow into what we'll see now. And coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, verse four, about choice and precious in the sight of God. That's speaking of Christ, choice and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus, the precious one, that was laid. In Zion, for our salvation, and we are being built upon. He says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice, precious cornerstone. He who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Then our passage. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Very few words, very significant statement. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Obviously, the precious value is speaking of Jesus Christ in the context of the cornerstone laid in Zion. And there's a contrast here. This precious value is for you, but for those who disbelieve, this precious value is actually the stone in which they'll stumble over. There's a contrast there. This precious value obviously speaks of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone in whom the whole building is founded, in whom the whole church is being built upon. Christ is more valuable than anything. He is more precious than anything. His work on the cross is more precious and valuable than anything. He, through his word, we are being built up. He is more precious than anything. So then, who is this value for? Who is the precious Christ for? Therefore, you could say, therefore, this precious value, or this precious value, therefore, is for you. Belief concerning christ his precious value that we are being built upon it only applies to believers it only applies to believers the person of christ and the work of christ only applies to believers the precious value of our lord and savior jesus christ only applies to believers All of what God is doing through Christ building us up applies only to believers. We're being built up as a holy priesthood. This precious value is for you. I don't think we see Christ as precious as we should. I don't think we value him like we should. Remember the term precious speaks of honored or valued. When something is precious, there is a high honor, a high value set to it. I don't think we recognize what God the Son truly did, the extent of what he did. We know the facts that he left his glory he became man he took on human flesh he became like us he was despised and afflicted he was he was persecuted by his own creation he was led up like a lamb to slaughter all of us have gone astray but the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him he did this for us he's precious he's precious And this precious value is for you who believe. He's for you. If God is for you, who could be against you? If God sent his precious son for you, if he gave his most precious possession for you, he is for you. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 32. I think we take the person of Christ so flippantly at times. We don't see his great value as God and also our Savior and his love for us. Romans 8:32: He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, for us all. How will he not also, with him, that's Christ, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's the, the, we saw the chosen, we're chosen. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Is the stuff that comes upon us for following Jesus going to separate us from his love? He says, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Hey, we are going to suffer if you're a true believer. It's just the reality. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This precious value is then for you who believe. Christ is for us. We are being built upon him. If we Trust in him. He will work his life through us. We will offer sacrifices to him, to God through him. Let me ask you this. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Gone to Christ Jesus for salvation? Have you been born again? If not, the precious value of Christ does not apply to you. But actually there's a contrast There's actually a contrast. Look at verse 7 again back in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. In contrast, this cornerstone who is precious to those who believe will actually be your eternal doom. And it's quite a contrast. From the most honored, precious thing to your eternal doom. That's the reality of how Christ will apply to all mankind. This precious value then is for you who believe. But in contrast for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. We have a very important contrast that separates mankind into two groups. There are those who believe in the context of Christ, believing in him, and those who don't. This precious value then is for those who believe. But in contrast to those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. In any building of that time, you would have a foundation and then you would have what's called the cornerstone, which the whole building is is built upon. Jesus Christ is that precious choice cornerstone. It is a metaphor. We are being built up upon him. He is a precious cornerstone But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone. Here we have the contrast. But for those who disbelieve, in contrast, Jesus' precious value is not for them, but in contrast, he is something else to them. Here Peter quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Let's take a look at that, Psalm 118, verse 22. He's referring to Jesus as the stone which the builders rejected. Psalm 118, verse 20. Let's go to 21. Great Psalm. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. Oh, praise the Lord, he saved us. I'm going to give thanks to thee. The stone which the builders builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. There's our quote. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad. glad. Rejoice in the fact that God sent his son Jesus Christ. And he is the foundation stone, the cornerstone of salvation. It is only through Christ that we can be saved. It is only on Christ that we are built up. The builders here in this quote speaks of the religious leaders of Jesus' time. He rejected him. The stone which the builders rejected, the Jewish leaders rejected him. Indeed, we saw that earlier in Matthew 1.21. The builders, Jesus shared that parable, and the builders, the, the religious leaders, knew that he was speaking of them. And he shared. He said, don't you know the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And they knew that he was speaking of them. Actually, turn there again in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21. Matthew 21 verse 42 after giving the parable concerning the rejection of the religious leaders and their cru- their, their killing of him we see in the parable Jesus said to them, do you, ne- do you, do you never read? Did you never read in the scriptures? Have you read the word of God? The stone which the builders rejected this is Matthew 21 verse 42 The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he, we'll look at this later, but this applies to what we'll see in a minute. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And they sought to seize him. And they seized him. They feared the multitudes because they held him. Excuse me. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected. And I shared this before. This term rejected is interesting. It means to test something and reject it after having tested it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh and he was rejected. And yet, in contrast for the non-believer and for us, he became the chief cornerstone. They rejected the one in whom they needed to be saved by. And he thus became visibly now the chief cornerstone in which we are saved, having died for our sins and rose from the dead. It is only through Christ Jesus alone that we are saved. He is the cornerstone. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 7. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. There is salvation in no one else. He's the cornerstone. He is the only thing that you can be saved by, only one you can be saved by, and the only one we can be built up upon. It has to do with Jesus, and therefore he will get all the glory. Acts chapter 4, verse 7 and this is when they're inquiring of Peter when he healed. Um, so we see in Acts chapter four, verse seven. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, "By what power or in what name have you done this?" Acts chapter f- I say seven, chapter four, verse seven. By what in what name, or in what name have you done this? Verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Now notice this verse 11. He is, that's Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the very cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He is the chief cornerstone. There is no other way to have salvation apart from Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be built up apart from being built upon him. This precious value back to our passage in First Peter is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. You know, some of you might be trying to build your life religiously on something other than Christ. Maybe you think you've got to do something good. You've got to come to church. You've got to do this or that. You, you, you might answer the question and say, hey, why should God let you in heaven? Say, well, I've been baptized or I've done this. That is a faulty foundation. It will not stand. The only way that one is saved is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to him to the Father, but through him. It is only through Jesus Christ he has become the chief cornerstone. For the builders, it was too late. They rejected him, and they are in will, they are experiencing their eternal consequences. But it's not too late for anyone here. If you have tested the truth and have rejected it, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He is the only means of salvation. Now notice, if you disbelieve, Christ will be something else to you. He won't be precious. Look back in verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Here we see specifically in verse 8. That if you reject Jesus Christ, you do not believe in him for salvation of your sins, he will become to you a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here Peter quotes Isaiah 8.14. Let's turn there, Isaiah chapter 8.14. And you could read a little bit before, it's actually good too, but we'll start at verse 14. Isaiah 8.14. Then he shall become a sanctuary both to the houses of Israel to to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. That's what Peter is quoting here a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The phrase back in First Peter, stone of stumbling, speaks of just a stone that someone would stumble over. We understand the metaphor. If you are walking along and there's a big stone in your way and you keep walking, you're going to trip over it and you're going to fall. And then we have this parallel statement, a rock of offense. The term offense comes from the Greek word skandalon. And it spoke of a bait stick or a trigger in a trap. And the word came to speak of something that tripped someone up or ensnared them and caused them to stumble. That's why it's often translated stumbling. It speaks of something that would block or impede our way, that would make us trip up and fall. Make us trip up and fall. Something that would make us stumble and fall. And in our passage, for those who disbelieve in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the one in whom they will stumble over and fall as we will see, their eternal destruction. He is precious to those who believe. He is your ultimate downfall if you disbelieve. If you do not believe in Christ, Christ will be what you stumble over to your eternal damnation. He will be the stumbling stone, the stone of offense, the eternal trap to those who do not believe. You will be ensnared and fallen. You will not escape. It's exactly the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9 concerning the Jews who didn't believe. They were stumbled because they tried to do things by their works rather than faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans 9, Romans 9, verse 27. There's a lot of places where the writers inspired by the Spirit use this analogy concerning Jesus Christ. Romans 9 27. Now the context of Romans 9 is the unbelief of Israel. The past they were chosen, but now they're moving into they're, they they did not believe having been chosen. Isaiah excuse me, chapter 9, verse 27. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand. though the number of the sons of the Excuse me. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word upon us thoroughly and quickly, as and just as Isaiah foretold. Even, or excuse me, except if the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a poster, to us a posterity, we, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. He's saying, unless He would have left like a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally, completely destroyed. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. You see, they pursued religious righteousness through works rather than through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. The result, if you pursue Religious righteousness, salvation, whatever it is, apart from Jesus Christ, this is what will happen. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. There are only two choices when it comes to Jesus Christ. And God has placed a demand upon us to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has called upon us and commanded mankind to repent and believe. God is commanding you to do that. And if you disbelieve, the precious value is not for you. It is all about your response to Jesus Christ. Notice in the end of verse 8, we have an explanation. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed the reason someone stumbles over Christ is because they are disobedient to the word. Well, what does he mean by that? Because he talked about them earlier as, as uh, non-believers. Well, first of all, that's key. What does he mean by those who are disobedient to the word? They stumble to their eternal damnation because they are disobedient to the word. Well, the key, first of all, is to remember they are, were described earlier in verse 8 as those who disbelieve, right or middle of verse 7 those who disbelieve. That's the key. And in scripture, we see it's clear that those who are disobedient to the word are really those who do not obey the gospel, i.e. they don't believe. They don't repent in belief. You see, God calls upon you through his word to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And when you reject that, you are disobedient to the word. And that is what will cause you to stumble to eternal damnation. Peter uses this term later on to speak of non believing husbands in 1 Peter 3 1 who are disobedient to the word. And later on, in a contrast in chapter 4, Peter uses this analogy that if God allows difficulty to come upon his people who he loves, how much more will it be for those who do not obey the gospel? Look in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be, feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. And he's going to explain. For it is time for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, if God would let us suffer, right, to be purified, obviously, he says, what will be the outcome for those who what do not obey the gospel of God? And with difficulty, if if it's with difficulty, the righteous is saved. What will will become of the godless man and of the sinner? God calls upon you to obey the gospel. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1. One last passage I want to talk about. There are horrible consequences for those who disobey the gospel, who are disobedient to the word. If you are not willing to humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, and place your faith completely in Jesus Christ, you are disobedient to the word. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is serious stuff. When God sends his son and he dies for your sins and you reject that because of pride, because of a love for sin, if that's where you find yourself today, ask God, Oh God, please take the blinders off my eyes. Take the hardness off my heart. Oh Lord, please. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Hey, you know what? You're suffering, but he says here, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And Look at this. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Retribution, eternal penalty. Obey the gospel. Obey the gospel or you will stumble over Jesus Christ. He will be your eternal downfall. You can live every day of your life free as can be doing whatever you want, but there will be a day when that ends. And you will spend the rest of your eternity in torment because of Jesus Christ. But this same Jesus can be precious to you if you're willing to trust in him. Willing to repent of your sins and trust in him. So let's finish up. Notice at the end of verse 8 he says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Notice this phrase, and to this doom they were appointed. To this doom. That doesn't sound too good, does it? To this doom they were appointed. The term doom really isn't in the original language, but it's implied. That's why the NASB puts it in there. Basically, this eternal stumbling over Christ is to one's damnation. That's what it is. And he says they were appointed to this. Those who disobey the gospel, they were appointed to this. The term appointed speaks of being placed. It is the destiny of those who reject Christ. Now before some of you might become unhinged and say that God is causing people to go to their eternal doom, we need to understand that's not what this passage is saying in light of other scriptures. And just briefly as we finish up, we get into the sphere here of what theologians call election and reprobation. I'm not going to get into a debate about this, but I just want to summarize some things. Because our passage says, to this doom they were appointed. You might say, okay, then God appointed them to their doom, so they're not responsible, right? Well, that's not the case. We need to realize God's word is clear. Man is responsible for their choice concerning Christ. When convicted by the Spirit of God, when you respond to the gospel, you are saved through Jesus Christ. And if you reject Him, you'll go on to your own damnation. A lot of passages, I don't have time for them, but in John 3, I you know that God gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, whosoever shall not perish. John chapter 5, the Lord says to the to the legal beagles of the time with the law, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and these they bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me. People don't come to Christ, not because God has appointed that, but because they're unwilling. Because they're unwilling. Further down in John chapter 8, he says, I say therefore you shall die in your sins, verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Ezekiel chapter 18, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they would return and live. When you are convicted by the Spirit of God concerning the gospel and you reject it, you alone are responsible for your damnation. God takes no pleasure in your death and subsequent damnation. Yet underlying this passage is God's sovereignty over everything, his sovereignty. Ultimately, whom he has chosen will be saved, and those whom haven't, they've been ordained in that sense. They've been placed in a place where they will be doomed. Two passages and want to finish up here. Look at Acts chapter thirteen, verse forty-eight for a second. This is something we could talk about for ten hours, by the way, but we should take what God's Word says and believe it. Acts chapter thirteen, forty-eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been, here's our word, appointed to eternal a life, believed. Hmm. Go to Proverbs sixteen four. These are hard passages because if we take them without the rest of Scripture, we might blame God for people's rejection of Christ, but that's not the case. But He is sovereign over everything. He has He is sovereign over all that will happen. Proverbs sixteen four this passage has always troubled me at times, but if we look in the rest of Scripture, we understand that man is responsible for the rejection of Christ. Proverbs 16:4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Yikes. Did God cause evil? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He made mankind, and mankind has a choice to trust in the Savior Jesus Christ or to reject him. And ultimately, God is sovereign over the entire thing, And he will bring forth his purposes no matter what. What has been appointed will come forth. But underneath that, every single person is responsible for how they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one will go to their doom, eternal doom, because of God. They will go to their eternal doom because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. He is the stone. He is the stumbling stone for those who reject him. Two choices two choices trust in the lord jesus christ for salvation and he will be precious he'll be precious for you and for me reject jesus christ and he will be the stumbling stone that you will trip over to your eternal damnation so how can we keep from being discouraged first of all remember what god is doing this for believers remember what he's doing we are being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices Remember, he has saved us. This precious stone was laid in Zion, and he died for our sins, and he saved us, and we are being built up on him. Understand, he is precious to those who believe. Is he precious to you? Friend, you've heard the truth today. Will you repent of your sin? Will you trust in Christ today? Brother and sister, when things are rough, Will you remember what God is doing through Christ in you? This precious value is for you. This precious value is for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And it is sobering to see what you have said concerning your son in relationship to those who disbelieve. It's troubling. And yet we know you're a good God and a gracious God. I pray for anyone here who right now is stumbling over Christ in unbelief. That they would be convicted of their sin before a holy God. That they would turn to your son Jesus who died for their sins and trust in him alone. Father, for those of us who believe, may we value Christ. May we praise you for him. May we glorify your name for your son. May we have a different view of your son. May we honor him. May we trust him. Lord, thank you for your son who died for us. Thank you for giving your precious son for us. In his name we pray.